When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Welcome to More Than Amuse. My name is Sadie. I'm Stani, and happy Murder Mystery Month! Happy More Than Amuse Murder Mystery Month. The first, I guess not the first episode of October, but the first episode of October that we're doing on theme yes. in preparation for Halloween, spooky season. Love it. These are some of my favorites. I wanted to briefly talk. So this is only our second year doing the whole month of themes, but we've done October episodes from the very beginning. Yes. They've quickly become our favorite. Last year, we did Monster Month, so we talked about Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. We talked mm-hmm. about the Creature of the Black Lagoon and his creator, and then like a bunch of monster movies and references from mythology. It was super fun. The year before that, I covered a ghost who got credit as an author. And I remember you talked about... I talked about Shirley Jackson. That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was like, it was iconic. How do I not remember? Yes. The author. Yes. Which Which is so good. I actually talked about that TV show with a friend today at work, and I was like, thank you for reminding me that it is now the month for my annual rewatch of Haunting of Hill House, because I I love it. love, love, love that Mm -hmm. one. So good. And then the very first year, we talked about the women horror writers of the early 19th century, which is still one of my favorite episodes we've covered and bleeds into all of our Halloween episodes, because I feel Mm -hmm. like there hasn't been a single Halloween that's gone by that we haven't talked about an author. Yeah, they actually tend true. to be the main subjects of our Halloween episodes uh-huh. just because women are so in the horror genre than they, they really have are. been from the beginning. So definitely check out all of those past episodes if that's something you're interested in. And really excited to talk about all the things that we've got this year. I mean, and I'm excited to continue that author theme. Yes. With your October yes. pick of the month. I'm so excited to talk about Agatha Christie. I've known that I was going to do this since pretty much last year. I think we like loosely decided on the theme for this year and she immediately came to mind. First off, because I love the recent movies that have been coming out, the Murder on the Orient Express. They also have the Death on the Nile and then Haunting in Venice just came out this month, which I haven't seen yet. But those are all based on Agatha Christie novels. I think The Hunting in Venice is the only one that's not the same title as the book. Oh, interesting. I think they were trying to keep with the murder on the Orange Express, death on the uh, Nile, haunting in Venice. That sounds more yeah. like a series. But it's her novel is actually Halloween Party is oh, what okay. Haunting in Venice is based on. But they're doing a really good job with them. They're directed by Kenneth Branagh. But he's a British actor and filmmaker and he actually is the one who plays hercule hercule the main detective there we go anyway but she is incredible i feel like she's popped up in everything for me this year so i've been like gathering facts and also there is so much information on her i cannot even begin to describe how much information there is on agatha christie Mm -hmm. it makes sense she's basically one of the most famous authors of all time this is not even gonna cover a teaspoon of all the evil I could find on her. Cool. And yet, this is probably the most information I've had on a person in a really long time. Oh, amazing. Just, I like, I realized I don't even know what she looks like, so I just Googled her. There we go. Yes. Now I have the visual of Agatha Christie. Amazing. Good. I'm not going to go super into depth in the history of all beforehand. Usually we do like a state of the arts. Mm-hmm. If I did that, we would be here all the way. <laughs> so we won't. But I wanted to bring up the fact that detective novels, obviously, have not always been a thing. The first modern detective story is often thought to be Edgar Allan Poe's The Murders in the Rue Morgue, 
which was the short story he published. However, detective fiction was so new that when he introduced the private detective in that story, the word detective hadn't even been used in English before. Wow. What? (laughs) Yeah. Which is crazy because we always talk about how there's always a first time for things. Yeah. But it's just funny to realize. 1841, Edgar Allan Poe said the word detective and it never left. So he invented that word? No, because it just said it hadn't been used in English before. So I'm guessing it was like a translation. Okay. Or maybe like a term from a different... I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. It doesn't go into depth. he was one of the first to make it a thing. Yes. And we all know Edgar Allan Poe, spooky writings. Yeah. We all read The Telltale Heart. Shortly after that, it really picked up. And you have Charles Dickens' journal. He talks about Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone, which was this novel that was a detective novel. And Charles Dickens is reading it. So then it becomes notorious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and then it's about these detective inspectors. And I'm sure a lot of it also had to do with the rise of crime. Like serial killers weren't even called serial killers until the 60s. So just as crime became more of a thing, people began to write about it. Of course, the next one that you would know would be probably the most famous detective character to ever be written, Sherlock Holmes. Yes. (laughs) Of course. That's by Arthur Conan Doyle. But he was actually inspired by Poe's detective that he wrote about in his story, which makes sense. But he wrote Sherlock Holmes novels the first one, The Study in Scarlet, came out in 1887, and he continued to write them until 1927, so for quite a period of time. Yeah. And then what came after that is the period of time that we will be talking about, and that is the 1920s to 1939, which was also known as the Golden Age of Detective Fiction. And the queen of this age... There we go. Agatha Christie. Yeah. She's often called, I think it's like the queen of mystery is like the name that they give her because during her lifetime she wrote 66 detective novels 14 short story collections her novel and then there were none remains one of the best-selling books of all time and as we've talked about she set a lot of guinness world records she's been known as like the best-selling fiction writer of all time her novels have been translated more times than any others And she also included two of the most famous detectives in literary history, Hercule Poirot and Mrs. Marple, who are highly influential to the future of crime fiction. Wow. Yes. Her genre of crime fiction is now known as cozy mysteries Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they're based on gathering clues and solving crimes as if they were puzzles. So that's a very neat and tidy form of detective fiction, which actually sounds quite nice. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, that seems like something that (laughs) still bring me peace. Definitely. So I think they're like a great thing to do in October. If you want to read a crime novel, but you don't want to deal with being too terrified to go to bed at night, I think Agatha Christie. Yes. And that's one of the criticisms of it is a lot of American writers think that they're just too neat and tidy because everything just. And then that was it. And they handcuff them and take them to jail and everyone yeah. lives happily ever after at the end. Mm. I like stories like that. Yeah, <laughs> um, I was just going to say I hate <laughs> that pretentious angle of oh, it has to be tragic. It's that's not realistic that everything would work out. It's like, I'm reading a story. Yes. I'm let me escape to my fantasy land. Yes. That's that also how I feel about romances. I'm like, yes. no, they end up together at the end. Duh. That's they how it works do. in books. Exactly. It has to work that way in books. Mm-hmm. Obviously, American crime novels took it a completely different direction and you deal with like corrupt crops and organized crime. And that leads into a whole other detective genre that moves forward. Um, But this golden age that we're going to talk about is definitely predominantly Agatha Christie, which is fun. So she Mm -hmm. was such an influential part of it. Love it. Okay, let's get into her life. (laughs) Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller was her full name. And she was born on the 15th of September in 1890 to a wealthy upper middle class family, which I feel like is a pretty standard for most of the people that we've covered that have been able to actually gain like major notoriety in their life. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah, I think it just definitely shows like the privilege that there is. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely notable. 
Just saying, her family was very well off. She was the youngest of three children born to Frederick Alva Miller, who was a gentleman of substance. Yes, that was his career. And his wife, Clarissa Margaret, or Clara Miller. So her mother had a really hard childhood. Her parents died pretty early, and she was actually fostered by her grandparents. But then when her grandfather died, he ended up leaving Clara 2,000 pounds, which is about 200,000 pounds. Yeah, wow. And pounds are about equivalent to dollars, I think, right now. So it's about $200,000. And they used this to buy the lease of a villa in Torquay named Ashfield. And it's there that their third and last child, Agatha, was born. She literally was born into probably the most stable part of her parents' life. Yeah. Perks of the last child, I guess. Yes. <laughs> um, she described her childhood as very happy, which is a wonderful thing to hear in these stories. And they lived mainly in Devon, but obviously visited family members quite often. They also got to travel abroad, and she spent some time in the French Pyrenees, Paris, Dinard, and Guernsey. Because her siblings were so much older, there wasn't a lot of children in the neighborhood, and so she spent a lot of time playing alone with her pets or with imaginary friends. She eventually made friends with other girls in Torquay and said that it was one of the highlights of her existence which is very wonderful. There was also this weird thing. <laughs> her mother didn't believe that she should learn how to read until she was eight years old. Interesting. Yeah, which I don't quite get. <laughs> I like tried to find some justification for it and I couldn't, but by eight, you're in what, first grade? Yeah, for second grade. So you're grade. not totally reading super well, but you can piece together words. So it's pretty standard to read pretty early. However, her mother forbid her from doing it, but thanks to her curiosity and a lot of time by herself, she was actually reading by age four. Wow. Didn't work. Another thing that was strange, her sister was sent to a boarding school to receive her education, but her mother insisted that Agatha receive her education at home. And so her parents and her sister supervised her studies and reading, writing, and basic arithmetic, which she really enjoyed. They also taught her music, and she learned to play the piano and mandolin, but she was completely homeschooled. The only one out of her siblings, once again, couldn't find a justification, justification for that. Yeah. A lot of her time was spent reading. She read a ton of books, very quickly moved on to Edward Lear and Lewis Carroll, also Charles Dickens. Mm -hmm. And at age 10, she was even writing poetry. By 1901, her father's health deteriorated from heart problems, and he ended up dying shortly after that when she was only 11 years old. And she said that ended up marking the end of her childhood. The family's financial situation by this time had worsened, I'm guessing buying a house with your inheritance and having that thing, be it. Yeah. yeah, things didn't go very well. Her sister ended up marrying the year after her father's death and moved away. Her brother was overseas serving in the regiment. And she was now living alone at Nashville with her mother. At that point, she began attending Mrs. Geyer's girl school. But then she hasn't been in any disciplined atmosphere for the first decade of her life. Mm -hmm. So she had a really hard time adjusting to it because it's like free roaming child and then now sit in a classroom all day. It didn't work out super well. So only... Two years later, her mother ended up sending her to Paris, where she was educated in these boarding schools that focused on voice training and piano playing. I think it was a little bit more less strict since it was more of an artistic focus. However, she didn't think she had the right temperament or talent for it. And so she gave up her goal of performing professionally as a concert pianist or an opera singer and went home. There we go. Yeah. So there could have been another timeline maybe yeah. where Agatha Christie was an opera singer. After completing her education, she went home. Her mother was sick. And so they decided to spend the northern winter in Egypt, which was like a regular tourist destination at the time. And they stayed for three months at the Palace Hotel in Cairo. And she attended a lot of dances in there. So social functions. They went to a lot of like Egyptian monuments. I'm assuming this Definitely influenced some of her later works. Mm -hmm. Death on the Nile, dare yeah. I say? <laughs> yeah. Maybe. 
Um, shortly after, they did return to Britain and she continued social activities and performed in amateur theatrics. She also helped put on a play called The Blue Beard of Unhappiness with female friends. Cute. So just really involved in arts her entire life. And then this is where she starts writing. So at age 18, she wrote her very first short story, The House of Beauty, while recovering in bed from an illness. It was about 6,000 words about madness and dreams. And her biographer later commented that the story was really compelling. It became like an early version of her story, The House of Dreams, that she would end up writing later. Other stories followed, most of them illustrating her interest in spiritualism and the paranormal. We've talked a ton about that, especially in past Halloween episodes. It was very popular at the time. Mm -hmm. So these included The Call of the Wings and The Little Lonely God. Magazines, who were the major publishers of a lot of short stories, rejected all of her early submissions that she had made under pseudonyms, including Mac Miller, Nathaniel Miller, and Sydney West. Interesting. Yeah, interesting that she chose three male names to try and get her stories published, huh? I wonder why she would do that. <laughs> Just kidding. We all Don't know. Listen to, our, <laughs> to our episode. We talk about yeah. that. Some submissions were later revised and published under her real name, often with new titles. This happens a lot. Um, there are some more pseudonyms we'll talk about later. She also began to write her first novel around the same time called Snow Upon the Desert, writing under another pseudonym. This one's a little bit different, though. It's monosyllaba. Interesting. Yeah. Love that. Not even like a real name. Yeah. (laughs) She set the book in Cairo and drew upon her recent experiences there. Six publishers she contacted declined the work. And so at this point, her mother suggested her daughter ask her advice from the successful novelist they had as a family friend and neighbor. You know, everyone's got one of those just lying around. Eden Philpotts. And she responded to her inquiry, encouraged her writing, and actually sent her an introduction to her own literary agent. Cool. How do you say this name? Hughes, probably? Yeah. Okay. Hughes Massey, who also rejected it, but did suggest a second novel. Okay. So he didn't kill her dreams. He just yeah. One more time. Yes. Try again. Of course, she was like only 19, I think. So she had a lot of social activities going on. They mm-hmm. talk about. Short-lived relationships with four men. She was engaged to someone else. And then around this time, she was introduced to Archibald Archie Christie at a dance. And he was the son of a barrister in the Indian Civil Service and a royal artillery officer. And they fell in love. And three months later, he proposed and she accepted. Beautiful. Notably, and very sadly, her mother did say, he's never going to remain faithful to you. He's a cad. Ah, she did marry him anyway. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> she was in love. Was yeah, she done? was with the cad Archie. World War I broke out. He was sent to France to fight. Oh. And so they married on Christmas Eve at the Emmanuel Church while he was on home for a leave. He rose through the ranks really quickly and was posted back in Britain in September, a couple of years later, and there served as a colonel in the air ministry and she actually really involved herself in the war effort too she was a part of the voluntary aid detachment of the british red cross and she worked 3400 hours in the town hall red cross hospital as a nurse like unpaid and then later as a dispenser i don't know entirely what that is but they out with the red cross efforts Mm -hmm. for 16 pounds which is about equivalent to 9.50. Not a ton. Yeah. A year later, she qualified as an apothecary assistant, but her war service ended when Archie returned and they rented a flat in St. John's Wood. She was very involved in the war effort herself and helped out a ton. She had long been a fan of detective novels. No surprise there. There we go. (laughs) Especially enjoying Wilkie Collins, Zolman and White, and The Moonstone, which we've talked about, and as well as Arthur Carn. Arthur Conan Doyle's early Sherlock Holmes stories. And so she decided to write a detective novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles in 1916, featuring the famous Hercule Perot. I know I'm saying his name wrong. I can't say it right. Watch the... <laughs> I'm going to call him Hercule. The way cool. that he says it is different. Okay, cool. I, I can't do it. Anyway, he's a Belgian police officer who has a magnificent mustache 
describes his head as exactly the shape of an egg <laughs> and had taken refuge in Britain after Germany invaded Belgium. Um, her inspiration for the character came from Belgian refugees living in Torquay and the Belgian soldier she had helped treat as a volunteer nurse during the First World War. I know that Hercule Pro also is a retired military man in the stories, oh. so it does bleed a lot into Yeah, that makes sense then. Mm -hmm. Her original manuscript was rejected, but after keeping the submission for several months, they offered to accept it, provided that she changed how the solution was revealed. Oh. Yeah. So she did. And they signed a contract committing her next five books to the Dang. publisher, which she later felt was exploitative, but it was published in 1920. Oh, hey, she got the book deal. So that's cool. So, yeah. So very cool. She also settled into married life and gave birth to her only child, Rosalind Margaret Clarissa, in 1919. And her second novel was published just shortly after, called The Secret Adversary, which featured a new detective couple, Tommy and Tuppence, who will continue as well. They're less famous than the other two, but she does write a few more about them. This earned her about 50 pounds, which is about 2,900 now. A third novel, Murder on the Links, again featured Perot as did the short stories commissioned by Bruce Ingram, who was editor at Sketch Magazine. So she's starting to get some more notice from 1923. And oh. at this point, she had no difficulty selling her work. Awesome. Which is great. She, she was notable enough that it was starting to be easier for her. In 1922, her and her husband actually joined an Around the World promotional tour for the British Empire Exhibition. And they left their daughter with Agatha's mother and Chris and sister. And for 10 months, they traveled South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, and Canada. And they were, I thought this was so funny. They were the first Britons to surf standing up. Or like among the first Britons to surf standing up. Apparently, they didn't really do that. To like, no, <laughs> I don't know. And they actually uh... extended their trip by three months to practice surfing. That's all Oh, so she's actually remembered at the British Surfing Museum, which I didn't know existed. <laughs> that makes that brings me joy that it I does know. exist. As having said about surfing, oh, it was heaven. Nothing like rushing through the water at what seems to you a speed of about 200 miles an hour. It is one of the most perfect physical pleasures I have ever known. It That's makes me want to try surfing, I've got to say. Very wholesome. I'm yeah. not going to lie. Very Adorable. cute. They returned to England shortly after her husband returning to work and her continuing to work at her writing. And shortly after living in a couple of apartments in London, they did end up buying a house in Sunningdale, Berkshire, which they renamed Styles after the mansion in Christie's first detective novel. Cute. Her mother died right after they were, of course, really close, I think, especially because she spent her entire childhood at home. And then when both of her siblings were gone and her mother was sick, she went back and stayed with her. Yeah. Up until she got married. And then I'm sure she stayed with her while her husband was in the military, too. So out of everyone, she spent the most time with her mother. And, of course, the law sent her into a deep depression. And in August 1926, reports actually appeared in the press that she had gone to a village to recuperate from a breakdown caused by overwork. Relatable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure just depression with all of that and everything going on. This is where one of the craziest twists happens. Okay. Agatha Christie disappeared. She dis disappeared? Uh-huh. For 19 days. What? What? Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that. Once again, we could do a whole podcast on just her disappearance. In fact, people have. There is a BuzzFeed Unsolved about Agatha Christie disappearing. I did watch it. Wow. There are podcast episodes on just her disappearance because this is crazy. But it did happen. What the trigger was. Her husband, actually, the same year her mother had died, asked her for a divorce. Oh, no. Yeah. He informed her that he had fallen in love with Nancy Neal, who actually, I think, Boo. they it was like an acquaintance. She was like 10 years younger. I'm pretty sure it was like this whole thing. Gross. So they quarreled. 
of course, because he announced his plan to spend the weekend with friends unaccompanied by his wife. Obviously, she knew he was going to stay with Nancy. Later in that evening, she disappeared. And the following morning, her car was discovered in Newlands Corner in Surrey, parked above a Chuck Corey with an expired driving license and clothes inside. Literally, they said precariously parked over this quarry. Okay. And abandoned. Yes. She wasn't there. They were worried that she may have drowned herself in the silent pool, which was like a nearby beauty spot. But they couldn't find her. Of course, this made the news because... Famous author is gone. A famous mystery author. Like, she loved mysteries so much she became one. Yeah. That's the vibe I'm getting. Which is just crazy. So I want to really emphasize the fact the front wheels were, like, overhanging the edge of this quarry. Like, I mean, to even get it in that position. Yes. Precarious. Very precarious. (laughs) There were newspaper articles everywhere within, I think, only, like, a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, the next day. And one of them even said, Mrs. Agatha Christie, novelist, disappears in a strange way from her home in England. Yeah. Yeah, it is strange. They searched for her for three days. They ended up calling it off. And then Christie's brother-in-law said that he had received a letter from her saying she was going to a Yorkshire spa for rest and treatment. They, They didn't believe him. So they opened the case again. But they didn't go and check the spa even. <laughs> I was like, I feel like that would be the first place you go check. You, know? you would assume. They didn't. Mm-hmm. However, they thought the whole thing was fishy. And so they opened it up again. Um, th- this is when it gets funny. And I feel like you could laugh about incompetence of the police. Okay. <laughs> because what? Yeah. Some of their methods are just hilarious. She went missing on the 5th. This is on the 10th. They decided to bring one of her dogs to the scene to see if he could track her scent. Not only is this five days later, this is not a bloodhound. It is a pet dog. Also, go check the spa that she said she was at. (laughs) I don't know. The dog just whined. Obviously, it's not a tracking dog. It was like her pet dog. I'm imagining my dog, Winnie. Being taken somewhere, they're like, track her down. He can find me in a house. He's good at finding my scent, but he'd be traumatized with that many people in an open area. You wouldn't know what to do. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) it's just silly. That is silly. What's also notable is that, like, silent pool that they said that maybe she had drowned in or something. Mm -hmm. There was, like, a local legend that it was bottomless. There's some spooky stuff going on. Okay. Yes, of course, the newspapers like ramped it up even more. They like claimed that she'd been spooked by her own house, saying that it had a reputation for being haunted. And the lane was the scene of a murder of a woman and a suicide of a man. And that she had told her friends, if I do not leave Sunningdale soon, Sunningdale will be the end of me. Don't know if any of that's true, by the way. The next day, after trying the whole dog thing, they... Found out that her she had actually sent three letters, one to her secretary, one to her brother-in-law, and a third to her husband. I don't know what the one to the secretary said. We already talked about the one to her brother-in-law saying she was at a spa. Her husband refused to divulge what was written in her letter and actually burned it. Aha, nice. Yeah. Maybe it, like, damned him too much. This is all your fault. Probably. Obviously, no one knew that he was having an affair other than her. Oh, True. Yeah. You didn't want that called out publicly. No. This also apparently was like one of the first times that planes were involved in the missing person disappearance. They used 500 police members and planes to fly over the area. And her husband did continue to say that him and his wife were not fighting when she left. That was his official statement. That's a really, yeah. Okay, sure. We'll see. Burns her letter. We're not in a fight. No, I didn't burn that for any reason. What are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. It was one of the biggest manhunts of all time. They had tons of people looking for her. There actually was a lot of criticism of it possibly being a publicity stunt or her faking her death or something. Fair. There's a couple of reasons why it probably wasn't 
First off, her book that had been published that year was already doing really well. It didn't like, need why would you help. need to do that? Yeah. She also was like an established author at this point. She had quite a few novels that were doing really well. It was obviously enough. She was enough of a public figure for them to be writing about her disappearance. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. With saying novelists. And her secretary actually responded to all of it and said, it's ridiculous. Miss C- Mrs. Christie is quite too much of a lady for that. <laughs> I like that response. She's quite too much of a lady to do something like that. <laughs> I feel like she would never. <laughs> so just funny. The police decided that they were going to try and find clues. And so they like started reading all of her manuscripts. <laughs> like, they were like fully set, like having this just be like one of her mystery novels. I and know. It that way. It's just a practical Go check the spa she said she was at. <laughs> Seriously. Or figure out what actually happened with her husband. Yeah. They're like, no. So many obvious um, things here. Right? At this point, it's December 13th. And between 10,000 and 15,000 people were taking part in the search for Mrs. Christie. Mm-hmm. At this point, they also brought in some trained bloodhounds. All right. There we go. As well as some police dogs. And we're having them try and search for her. They also started throwing around this idea that she was, like, in London disguised as a man and oh. that she had left behind a sealed envelope that was only to be opened in the event her body was discovered. Not a thing. <laughs> so where was she? Hold on. They also brought in some spiritualists because it wasn't enough. So they had a seance to try to figure out where she was. This was the police. This was an official police-mandated seance. Cool. It went on for a really long time. Guess where she was? The spa. The spa. <laughs> okay. That's insane. <laughs> they were told on the second day, by the way, that she was going no, there. No, that's too easy. She, there's no way she could be there. Yeah. So that's she was found hilarious. at the Yorkshire Spa okay. on December 15th. What was crazy, she had checked in under a different name. And when they went up to her, she literally had no recollection of who her husband was or anything when they, like, first showed up at the scene. They took her in for medical evaluation, and apparently they said that she had suffered the most complete loss of memory. Oh, that's sad. Like, that means it was so, like, heartbreaking and tragic for her. That that was, like, the response, I feel. She had checked under the name Mrs. Tressa Neal. Do you remember what his mistress' name was? Uh, Neil. Oh, poor woman. Poor woman. Christy insisted that he had no idea what the name meant, and his wife didn't either. Okay. Sure. Maybe. Sure. 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 Hundreds of people actually showed up at the London train station as the couple made their way home to catch a glimpse of her. Yeah, let's see it. Yeah. Vibe. And she actually never publicly spoke about it other than one interview with the Daily Mail years later. But 15 months after this whole thing, she did sue her husband for a divorce. I think you had to do that at the time. I don't know how that worked. But he did marry Nancy Neal right after their divorce went through. Nice. He sucks. Yes. But... It's notable two doctors actually diagnosed her with unquestionable genuine loss of memory. She said later in her Daily Mail article that she had seen pictures of Agatha Christie in the newspaper at the spa and then told the people, she was like, wow, don't I look a lot like her? And then she even told them that she thought Agatha Christie was dead because she's she's been gone for nine days. She's probably dead. Oh, that's freaky. Yes. That, and again, makes me sad. Like, she... Whew. Yeah. The other thing is that she had put ads in the newspaper under the name Tessanil or Tressanil, whatever it was, asking for relatives if anyone knew who she was. She claims that she showed up at a train station and had talked to some officers trying to figure out where she was before making her way back to the spa. The doctors think the idea was that she was, like, conscious of her actions but not in like emotional control of herself and that's how she like ended up where she was supposed to be but like Mm -hmm. not quite remembering everything that she was supposed to do that makes sense and one doctor even called it like a fugue state which Mm -hmm. i guess is like a common term where you just end up with like it's a temporary thing where you just completely disassociate 
and you can't remember who you are, details about your past, and you end up in unexpected places. And yeah, obviously it's triggered by trauma. Crazy, right? Yeah. That she just disappears. It causes this whole manhunt. What I thought was the most funny about this is that there's actually a lot of people. One notable author, actually, Jared Cade, concluded that she had planned the event to embarrass her husband but didn't anticipate the resulting public melodrama. I don't know if that's true because I feel like she would have come forward sooner when she saw the reactions. Um, Just be like, all right, I'm back here. Sorry, everyone. Yeah. But a lot of people think that it was like a gone girl situation. Like she was trying to frame her husband for murder. Well, he deserves it, so I'm fine with that. But she didn't actually leave anything behind that would show that she had been... I feel like she would have been able to frame her death more. If that's what she was actually successfully. Yeah, Yeah. I fully believe she had a nervous breakdown, went into a fugue state and ended up... That's fully, yeah. I totally and that's what that she well. said until the end of her life. She didn't write about it in her autobiography. Like I said, she only did the one interview about it in the, with the Daily Mail later because everyone continued to hound her about this for the rest yeah. of her life, which I'm sure was so painful to go through something like, like this. This is the worst like moment of my life. I don't want to talk yes. about it. I disappeared for nine days not knowing who I was because of how traumatic this yeah, this event was for me. I don't want yeah. to bring this up again. Just insane, though, but it continues to be this mystery that people talk about because even Christy doesn't even really know what happened. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a lot of theories where it's like she never really confirmed. And so they continue to say, oh, it was a publicity stunt. Oh, it was it this. Oh, it was that. Circulated. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. Um, okay, so the person I'll be spotlighting today is named Marisol Murrow, and her bio says, LA girl living in a technicolor world. Cute. Uh-huh. And I found her via my Instagram Explore page because there is a little graphic she's done of ghosts that are like sheet ghosts, but they're like floral sheets, and it's a group of them all holding hands in a little spooky circle. And I love them with the caption, life's too short to be plain white sheet ghosts. And it's so cute little thing. And of course, she is just celebrating the season with many ghost graphics that are floral, but not just ghosts like jack-o'-lanterns and little kittens with pumpkins and kittens that are dressed as mummies. And it's just really adorable. So so go check it out. These are like the most colorful Halloween. I know. It's my favorite kind of Halloween decoration. Yeah, that's so And she has a website with not just the prints, but like also her t-shirts with her artwork. Oh my goodness, a daisy decorative curtain. There you go. Um, But yeah, a lot of really adorable things. So go check out Marisol. Okay. I found an artist whose username is Classy Creeps nice on instagram and her name is jenny richardson in her bio it says monsters goals and all assorted creeps i found her little graphic of the haunted hairstyles that she posted three days ago which is very cute yeah i love that yeah very retro Mm -hmm. she's also got like just fun t-shirts illustrations oh yeah they are so fun i've seen this one a ton of the monster hands mm-hmm. like a mummy skeleton and everything like flipping off the yeah yeah that one's been around they also did like a bunch a limited batch of custom hand-painted malibu barbies oh that look like a vintage barbie but it's like a green Ooh. skeleton barbie oh my gosh amazing and she comes in a cotton incredible <laughs> yeah which we're on board with here Yes. Anyway, I just love her style. Very like girly and yet dark retro vintage. I love that. It's cute. Amazing. Yeah, go check her out. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Luckily, her life got a lot better from this point on, which is wonderful. Yes. She actually got to travel to Istanbul and accomplish this lifelong goal of traveling on the Orient Express. There we go. There it is. Where she wrote her novel. There we go. I love that. (laughs) Yes. Shortly after, she also sailed with her daughter and secretary to the Canary Islands. They traveled a lot more. And then she was able to retain custody of her daughter in the whole divorce, which is good. She did keep the surname Christie for her writing, which I don't critique her on at all. Like, she already was very established. Yeah, you've made a name for yourself with. That would just have caused problems for her. Yes. But like I said, oh, he married Nancy Neal a week after they got divorced. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that just a man of patience. Twist the knife in the wound. Reflecting (laughs) on the period in her autobiography, I love this quote, actually. She wrote, So after illness came sorrow, despair, and heartbreak. There's no need to dwell on it. And then she moved on. You know what? I get that. Like, at the end of your life, you're summarizing it. You're like, and we are not going to talk about that. Yeah. Moving on. I respect that. There we go. This is the fun part, too, because she got interested in a lot of things that were, like, new. She became really good friends with an archaeologist named Leo Woolley and his wife. And they invited her on a dig where she met this archaeologist, Max Mallowin, who was 13 years her junior. Mm -hmm. And then she went on this expedition site with all of them to Iraq. And her and Malin ended up falling in love and married in Edinburgh in September of 1930. Wow. And they were married up until the day she died. Okay, good. So she found yeah. a good true love. That's and she sweet. got to go with him on all these archaeological expeditions and cool. traveling everywhere, which led to a lot of her novels being set in the Middle East. I was just going to say that would then make sense for what I know about her books. So yes. That's really cool. Yeah. Her books are like in so many different locations which is Mm -hmm. really cool and i think it's because she was able to accurately write about all of them because she was there she was there she's yeah and i'm sure like his archaeological knowledge came a lot in handy too for a lot of Mm -hmm. stuff like that like clue finding like hiding and stuff and him like being an archaeologist true yeah i just think that's really fun they were cute they lived in a little house she wrote there it's still there what a dream life i know she ended up serving as the president of the Amateur Dramatic Society and being involved in local theater. Mm-hmm. Very cute. They had a little summer home in Cheshire and stayed there as well for the summer. And just were so adorable. Dreams, wrote books. <laughs> yeah, traveled and were in love and everything. World War II broke out. And she actually ended up working at a pharmacy with the University College Hospital in London during that time and updated her knowledge of poisons, obviously, so she could write better cases about being poisoned. Cool. They actually said that in 1977, a thallium poisoning case was solved by British medical personnel who had read her book. And recognized the symptoms. That's crazy. Can you imagine that? They're like, yeah, oh, we read amazing. a detective novel. It's probably thallium poison. And then but, they were right. Yeah. So I feel that's like that's amazing. great because it shows how well informed she was. Like she just wasn't throwing anything in there. She also got investigated by the British intelligence agency because she she had a character named Major Bletchney that was in her thriller NRM. And it was about a hunt for a pair of deadly fifth com- columnists in wartime England and they were concerned that she had a spy in their top secret code breaking center oh yeah and she actually told them she told her friend the code breaker Dilly Knox I was stuck there on my way by train from Oxford to London and took revenge by giving the name to one of my least lovable characters so they thought that she had named the character because that's where they had their code breaking center is that yes so she had a character so called really i'm not explaining this well she had a character called major bletchley that's where they had their code breaking center and because it was in a detective novel they got worried that she knew but then she was <laughs> like i actually just got stuck in bletchley when i was traveling 
And I got so mad that I was stuck there that I named a character Major Bletchley. Amazing. Yeah. But I think it's funny that they're like, she has spy. <laughs> there are so <laughs> many conspiracies. She knows yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, she was elected as a fellow of the Royal Society Society of Literature. Um, she was appointed cool. commander of the Order of the British Empire. She was co-president of the Detection Club from 1958 to her death in 1976. She also was awarded an honorary Doctor of Literature degree by the University of Exeter. Cool. She also, like a lot of the British people we've covered, was promoted to Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire. So she's technically Dame Agatha Christie, plus all of her middle names that we covered at the beginning. Yes. But this was also three years after her husband had been knighted for his archaeological work. And so she could also be known as Lady Malouin, cool. another name tied to the list along with her many aliases and everything. Yeah. <laughs> From 1971 to 1974, she actually had failing health, but continued to write. And her last novel was Postern of Fate in 1973. And they think that she probably developed Alzheimer's or dementia mm. towards the end. And that mm -hmm. was the last novel that she ever wrote before she passed away. Makes sense. Sad. Yeah. So she died peacefully on the 12th of January, 1976, at age 85 from natural causes. That's a long, full life. Yes. And what's very cute, the St. Martins, where one of her plays, The Mousetrap, was playing, and the Savoy, which was home to a revival of Murder of the Vicarage, they dimmed their outside lights in her honor. Aww. And the funeral service was attended by about 20 newspaper and TV reporters. Some was traveling from far away South America. Wow. 30 wreaths adorned her grave, including one on behalf of the cast from The Mousetrap, and also one sent by the Overscroft large print book publishers on behalf of the multitude of grateful readers. That's, yeah, that's beautiful. Her husband, obviously, he was a lot younger than her, so he did remarry a little while later, mm -hmm. but he died shortly after that. So it said like he remarried in 1977, but he died in 1978, and then oh. he was buried next to Christy. Okay, so I know we covered her life. There's a few other things we have to go over before we end. <laughs> cool. I'm interested. Yes, there's a lot. Okay, so there were a lot of things she set up before she died that are just funny and nice. So one thing is she established a trust for children mm -hmm. and then set up a charitable memorial fund, which was to help two causes that she favored, old people and young children, which I thought was really cute. Yeah. Also throughout her life, she won local prizes for horticulture. So she had like all these plant things and everything that she did and very sweet. One thing I think is really cool, she really thought it was important to hold the rights to her works. We can relate to that in this yeah. day and age. And mentioned many times that she was unhappy about becoming an employed wage slave, which I think is fair. So for tax reasons, she set up a private company called Agatha Christie Limited that held the rights to her works. Wow. And when she was almost 80, she sold half of the stake to Booker Books, which increased its stake to about 64% shortly after. But Agatha Christie Limited, it's very notable, still owns the worldwide rights for more than 80 of Christie's novels and short stories, 19 plays, and nearly 40 TV films. So everything's oh. still coming from that estate. If you want to read the entire chronological history of everyone who's taken control of this estate, it exists. Interesting. I'm not going to. Cool. <laughs> Fair. However... It's very notable that, like, her family is still involved in the trust. That's cool. Yeah, which I thought was very nice, like, mm -hmm. down from her daughter to her grandchildren and everything. Yeah. And, and this is the trust that all of the books are still being published under. The movies are being made through. Everything is coming through the rights through the Agatha Christie Limited that she set up. So I think cool. that's really cool, especially to see, like, a woman... Yeah. wanting to retain the rights to her book and the fact that she still in some way is able to have control to the rights yeah. of her works mm -hmm. even after her death okay talking a little bit about her characters we've talked a lot about hercule perot and i think he's very well known one of the reasons that she switched away from perot was a lot like what doyle did with sherlock holmes she just got tired of him yeah. She actually described him in her diary as insufferable and said that he was an egocentric creep. 
<laughs> Which That's is hilarious. funny. It's a very notable. Doyle didn't really love Sherlock Holmes either. However, unlike Doyle, she didn't want to kill off her detective while he was still popular. I think she mm-hmm. just let him fade away. Mrs. Jane Marple was introduced shortly after for some short stories. And what I love about this, I think I really want to read a Marple story. She's a genteel elderly spinster who solved crimes using analogies to English village life. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, for that, that's very cute. (laughs) Yeah. She was like loosely based off of her grandmother, but said that she was more fussy and spinsterish than her grandmother ever was. But obviously, I think there was like some correlations there. She said that Marple always expected the worst of everyone and everything and were with almost frightening accuracy usually proved right. So Mrs. Marple gets 12 novels and 20 stories. And a lot of people wanted the crossover between the two, between Hercule Perot and Miss Marple. She revealed that she would never do that because Hercule Perot is a complete egotist and would not like being taught his business or having suggestions made to him by an elderly spinster lady. Said Hercule Perot, a professional sleuth, would not at all be home in Mrs. Marple's world. Nice. And I thought that was funny. These characters do not go together. Do yeah. not try to push them together. I feel like, too, that she obviously cared about these characters. Yes. very aware of who they were. That's really cool. She really did. What's funny, too, is that Perot was the first fictional character to have an obituary in the New York Times. Wow. When he died, which was printed on page one on August 6th of 1975. Not only was he a fictional character that got an obituary, it was on page one. That's amazing. (laughs) Yes. One thing that I thought was really cool, so I talked about how she was named, I think I mixed up a bunch of them. She had quite a few names that they gave her. One was the Duchess of Death. There was the Mistress of Mystery Mm -hmm. and the Queen of Crime. Queen of Crime. Yes. And early in her career, a reporter noted that her plots are possible, logical, and always new. At the start of each novel, she shows us an apparently impossible situation, and then we go mad wondering how can this be happening, and then slowly reveals how the impossible is not only possible, but the only thing that could have happened. Interesting. I love that. I think that's exactly what a mystery should be. This kind of story writing did get criticism later because people would say that if you picked the least likely person to commit the crime, then they'll be the one who did it. So it like got a bit redundant. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because they were just like, spot the person who you think couldn't have possibly done it and they'll be the one who did. Yeah. She did change it up a little bit later and started to, like, say there's no way you'll be able to tell who does this for that reason because she got sick and tired of the criticism, (laughs) which is fair. But what I thought was really cool, she talked about the way that she wrote the novels and it said that she would create her cast of characters. She would choose her setting, produce the list of scenes in which the clues would be revealed. Mm. Then she would, like, change up the order of the scenes as she developed her plot. And then towards the very end, she would figure out who the murderer was. So she, like, let the story reveal itself to her. Yes. That's cool. And then she would, like, begin to do the first draft of her novel. And they said a lot of the dialogue was actually done in her head before she put it on paper. Yeah. So just cool to think about it. It's like she let the story guide her into who the murderer should be instead of having it be the person. deciding this is the murderer. Yeah. Yeah, that's a cool way to write a mystery novel. Yeah, I agree. Which is very fun. A lot of people, I love that there's like a crime writers association that exists. And out of all the members, they actually chose her book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, as the best whodunit that was ever written. Oh, fun. A little bit about it. Since she wrote so many books, I'm going to try to give little tidbits about them. So if anyone wants to read, I'm not going to obviously do all of them. But this one, since they said it was the best. Mm-hmm. The setting is a village deep within English countryside. He dies in his study. Obviously, Roger Ackroyd dies in his study. There's a butler who behaves suspiciously, and every successful detective story in this period involved a deceit practiced upon by the reader. And here's the trick is the highly original one of making the murderer. Should I spoil it? It's been out for Spoiler forever. alert. Yeah. <laughs> the local doctor who tells the story and acts Ooh. as Perot's Watson. So he ends up being the murderer at the end and they actually said that 
If Agatha Christie had made no other contribution to the literature of detective fiction, she sh- still would have deserved our grateful thanks for writing this novel. Ah, that's such a nice yeah. yeah. In September 2015, to mark her 125th birthday, and then there were none, was named the world's favorite Christie in a vote sponsored by the author's estate. Cool. So that's most notably her most popular novel, mm-hmm. which is obviously classic setup. Yeah. Potential victims, killer, lodged from the outside world. Yep. And what's notable about this one, there's actually no detective, no interview of suspects, no careful search for clues, and no suspects gathered together in the last chapter to be confronted with the solution. She said herself 10 people had to die without it becoming ridiculous or the murderer being mm-hmm. obvious. And critics yeah. actually agree that she had succeeded, that she set herself up for a test of her own ingenuity, and it worked. There we go. Love it. Yeah. So that one's the most popular. Because we're talking about, and then there were none, I think it's really important to point out that there was a lot of racism during this time. Oh, okay. That did bleed into her works. Mm-hmm. Her original title of Then There Were None is Ten Little N-Words. Oh, what? Yeah. I wanted to mention it was based on like a song at the time, like a nursery rhyme. Okay. And so it actually has nothing to do with the characters, the plot at all. It was just like a little almost rosy posy or some ring around the rosy pocketful posy. It was like a nursery rhyme saying. So obviously they changed the title. I mean, yes, I'm glad. I'm glad that yeah. the title didn't mean it had horrible contents. So. No, it like really had nothing to do with it, which I think is like open criticism of why then. But at the time, you have to realize that wasn't considered it, like it was of, a nursery it is crazy rhyme. That, that was a nursery rhyme. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of that. There's some anti-Semitism in the way she describes some of her characters. So basically, a lot of the books have gone back and they've taken out some of these descriptions that just aren't necessary. Because it just wasn't it just wasn't even important to the plot at all. It was just a byproduct of the time. So Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about it is that they were able to very easily edit them from with their offensive language without getting rid of any of the beauty of the mystery. Okay, cool. So, yeah. But if you go and pick one up now, as long as it's been published after, you won't find that. Yeah, you won't find any of it in there. But just to mention it was there. Her play, Mousetrap, is actually the world's longest running play. Yeah, well, I'd I'd heard of that play. I just didn't realize that (laughs) it was all the same person. Yes, it was written by her. It actually showed at the West End St. Martin's Theater in 2011 with the sign signifying that it was the 59th year of the production. Cool. Yeah. So it's been around forever. The St. Martin's Theater has actually showed like over 20,000 performances of Mousetrap. That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. And they've adapted a lot of her other work. So how she got introduced into the theater in 1928, Michael Morton adapted the murder murder of Roger Ackroyd into a stage play under the name Alibi. It had a respectable run, but she didn't like the changes that were made to her work mm-hmm. and decided that in the future she preferred to write for the theater herself. Okay. So her first was Black Coffee, which received really good reviews. And then she ended up following with adaptations of her detective novels. And then there were none, Appointment with Death and The Hollow. And then she adapted her short radio play into The Mousetrap, which premiered in the West End in 1952. And it starred Richard Attenborough as the original detective, Sergeant Trotter. Mm -hmm. And she didn't think that the play was going to be that successful. Interesting. And it has made theatrical history as the world's longest running play. We can't argue with that then. That's crazy. It actually only closed temporarily during the pandemic and then opened up again right after. So I think it's actually still going. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. That was her foray into the theater and it continued for quite a while. She wrote to her daughter and said that plays are much easier to write than books because you see them in your mind's eye and you're not hampered by all that description, which clogs you so terribly in a book and stops you from getting on with what's happening. And then wrote that being a playwright was a lot of fun. Oh, I love that. Yeah. 
Now I want to go see a production of Mousetrap. I know. I'm like, there's so much. I'm going to read all the Christie books, mm -hmm. which would be quite a feat. <laughs> yeah. And then go see Mousetrap and all the other plays. She had another pseudonym for <laughs> some reason later on in her life. This one was Mary Westmacott. And she published six mainstream novels and just wanted, she said she just wanted to explore her most private and precious imaginative garden. Yeah. So they weren't mystery novels. <clears throat> I don't think so. Okay, cool. Yeah. They actually received better reviews than her detective and thriller fiction. I don't really know what the subject was. I think you'll have to look into it. But cool. It exists. It's out there. But on the inside of the dust jacket, they mm -hmm. said that it was the pen name of a well-known author. <laughs> that the author had previously written under her real name had half a dozen books that have each passed the 30,000 mark in sales. So they were like trying to bump up the sales for these books without revealing who it was. Mm -hmm. After her authorship, she'd written four, then her authorship was revealed, and then she wrote two more. Yeah, so she's got six books there. She also wrote some nonfiction just because... She has, like, a bunch of travel nonfiction from, like, the archaeological digs, her journeys across the British Empire, including South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, okay. and her autobiography. There we go. She's also referred to as the queen of crime, the queen of mystery. Talked about that. One thing I thought was cool, I'll end with this one. I don't even know where it is in these notes because, guys... She not even begin to describe how much information there is on this woman. I love it. it. There's a lot. She wrote two books towards the end of her life and actually locked them away in a safe. And it was to be used as like an insurance help for her daughter oh. and her children. They did get published shortly after her daughter had to cash in on them. Uh -huh. But I thought that that was really cool. And it reminded me of, did you hear the Dolly Parton when she found Dolly Land locked a song in a vault? Mm -hmm. And we don't have it. To yeah. And it'll probably won't be played until after she's gone. That's crazy. Yeah. And I just kept thinking about like how fun it would have been if her daughter wouldn't have had to cash in on it and they could have yeah. left it in the vault for a little longer. Yeah. But I guess like what a smart thing to do where it's yeah. like, hey, if you need some extra money posthumously publish this book i think that she is just such a shrewd businesswoman in so many of the things she did you can tell she has like a logical and thoughtful brain yeah i mean wasn't right mysteries you'd have yeah, to i think wasn't afraid to shy away from the dramatic her love yeah. of the theater and everything else and i think it just bled into everything she did and she's able to be so successful at everything that like mm -hmm. They're still making movies about her characters now. Yeah. Very successful movies. The third one that came out this month. I think that shows that it wasn't just a like thing for that time here. period. She had a lasting impact on the future yeah. of crime novels. That's so cool. Yeah. That is Agatha Christie. There's yeah, so it. much more. <laughs> want to go find <laughs> We're scratching the surface. <laughs> we always scratch the surface, though, but yeah. still. There was a lot. I will say her life is probably the best documented out of anyone I've yeah. ever talked about. Mm -hmm. The fact that they have everything. They have, like, when she started antiquing. It's been found. I'm not kidding. That's so nice, though. <laughs> they wrote down literally every single detail of her life and kept it. Mm -hmm. And it makes me happy that she's so well celebrated. It also makes me sad that there's some people we can barely get 30 minutes on, on. Yeah. And then we could literally do a Three whole podcast yeah, on yeah. Agatha Christie and every single detail of her life. Yeah. It just shows her impact, I think, especially, and that she was able to pass by a lot of the sexism of the time and, mm -hmm. and write these beloved novels that continue with us today. I love that. Yeah. Well... Now I guess there's a challenge for the week is go, you don't have to read a whole book, but you go watch a movie. Yeah. Go engage with Agatha Christie's art in some way. Seriously, the Haunting in Venice one I think is supposed to be really good because it's like a ghost. Yeah, I need to go. I actually do really want to go see it. So yeah, I'll, I have the Regal movie pass. So oh, nice. no reason not to go use it and go yeah. see it this weekend. And if you don't want to see the new ones, like the BBC did a ton of movies very early on in the 20s and everything else too based on her novel so if you want to watch an old one 
There we go. That's there too. That's fun. Yeah, she's got millions of novels to pick from. (laughs) Thank you for teaching me about her. I'm so excited (laughs) that I now know. I actually, I had heard of The Murder of the Orient Express and I had like vaguely heard the name. But like when you first told me who it was, I like didn't immediately put two and two together. So I'm glad that this will be in my brain. I will know who Agatha Christie is. I will be able to celebrate her properly in my brain. Yeah. No, same. I'm glad just to know a little bit more about her and Mm -hmm. her crazy story. Yeah. And yeah, it's fun to appreciate works made by women, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It is. It's my favorite thing to do, in fact. (laughs) Same. Thank you for the first episode of More Than Amuse Mystery Month. Thanks for being here, listener. And we are going to be doing this all month. Also, I we probably should have said this at the beginning. The rest of the episodes in October, they're actually going to be on YouTube. Yes. And we're going to have a visual component to it. If you're listening on audio today, but you prefer to like watch podcast episodes, we're going to be up there for the rest of October. Mm-hmm. We'll see how it goes, see how much we continue that. At the very least, we're going to keep doing at least one episode a month yes. on YouTube so that we can try and get some type of YouTube content yeah. out there. And so. don't judge us too harshly for our setups. Obviously, it's just us <laughs> in our dark rooms. It's my fault because of my job that we have to record so late. It would probably end up happening with mine, too, anyway. Yeah, Perks of full-time job and podcasters on the sides. Yeah. It's not a beautiful video, but if you want to look at us, what we're yeah. talking about, Maybe you there. just prefer listening on YouTube. I don't know. It's out there. So yes. You can go give that a try. Cool. And also the goal is to do watch parties every single Mm. week. We did it for last year and it was just so much fun. I don't know which one we'll watch. I'm thinking like Death on the Nile maybe. True. Yeah, I'm good with that. So we'll post more details about that. And if you just want to tune in and watch that with us, we'll have details for that this week. On our Instagram. Cool. And we will be back next week. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.